the National Archives podcast series, Emigration Records, presented by Roger Kershaw. Thanks for coming this afternoon. It was very much really to be an introduction to the sources we have here at Kew for tracing emigrants. When I discuss emigrants, I'm really talking about free emigrants, people who largely chose to migrate overseas as opposed to transportation records, which would be probably something for a different session. Just to let you know, what I'm going to cover today are records which kind of physically record the movement of somebody overseas. So the issuing of passports and also what were known as licenses to travel beyond the seas and how full they are here at the National Archives. Also passenger lists, which obviously physically record somebody's uh, movement abroad. And then there are a number of free emigration schemes that the government would create uh, during the 19th century. There was a commission called the Land and Emigration Commission, which was set up in 1833, and that was specifically designed to foster and promote emigration to the colonies. So you had waves of people moving to uh, Canada, and then later on you had you know, waves of migration to, say, Australia and New Zealand and elsewhere in the, in the, in the, in the uh, colonies. I mean... It's estimated that between 12 and 13 million British people migrated from the United Kingdom and Ireland from the beginning of the 1600s through to the 1960s and 70s, and we've obviously got a lot of records to record that. To to America alone, it's estimated, and, and to Canada, about 11 million would go there, and about a million and a half would, would go to Australia and New Zealand. I also want to talk about uh, child migration because that was a very specific kind of scheme which operated as early as 1618 when children were migrated out from London through to Virginia. But by and large, these were very much migration schemes towards the middle and the end of the 19th century and continued to the 1960s. And um, an awful lot of uh, children would actually be migrated during that period in excess of 100,000 majority going to uh, Canada, 80,000, and the majority were from institutions, so they were coming from homes, and often are referred to as the home children. But they'd be as young as three or four, and as old as 14 or 15. Just to remind you that we've got our website, and increasingly you can find out more and more information about our archives on the website. And I'll use this talk as an opportunity to direct you where we've actually made particular or strive to improve our catalogue with regards to emigration sources and increasingly we're putting more and more records online and I'll give you more information about that as well. In terms of the research guides, the most probably useful for this talk are the guide for emigration and you can download this from the web and there are some other ones which you may want to look at as well which go into a bit more detail. There's one for example called Ships Passenger Lists, one called Research in British Colonies and Dominions and there's also one for passports. If you want to take it further, as these are a few books which uh, I wrote and, and co-wrote with a guy called Mark Pearsall, who's the family historian at the National Archives, Emigrants and Expats is actually out of print, and we're just negotiating a new guide to hopefully come out at the beginning of next year. Family History on the Move is a, is a, is a collection of small guides that the National Archives began to bring out a few years ago, so that's looking at both emigration and immigration sources. And in February this year, with Janet Sachs, I uh, co-wrote a guide specifically about the history of child migration called New Lives for Old. Okay, let's start off with uh, discussing passport records and what they contain and what we've got here at the National Archives. 
it, it, it wasn't compulsory to carry a passport in this country until 1916. It was introduced during the First World War when espionage was high and other European countries were also adopting compulsory use of passports. Before then, it, it, it wasn't compulsory. And in fact, before 1858, passports weren't just issued to British people. They were also issued to foreign people who were wishing to travel, travel to Britain. So we've got lots of different sources to, uh, to indicate this. The very early form of passports were licenses to pass beyond the seas. And this is in an Exchequer series, E157. And they're very much created so passengers would swear an oath of allegiance to the, to the Crown. And uh, being an Exchequer document, they would, would ra raise revenue as well. They go between 1613 and 1635, so there's not a huge number of years that that particular collection covers. Later on, until the early 19th century, there are similar warrants and passes which were created by the State Papers Office. The series indicate that they go up to 1828. But the main registers of passports that you and I know of today started in 1795, and they go through to 1948. And away into those registers are the indexes in the series FO611. Again, a little bit patchy in terms of the coverage of years. And you have uh, case papers. These are very detailed applications for passports, starting around about 1916 and actually going up to the mid-1960s. The bulk of them are around about 1920, but it is, it is beyond that. And we'll, we'll look at some of these in a moment. And similarly, you have a whole selection of case papers of passports themselves. So passports that were issued and then became, they expired. They then return to the passport office and a selection has been archived here, the National Archives. It wasn't until 1968 that passports were issued for a standard period of 10 years. Before then, it was an they were issued for five years, before then for two years. And in the 19th century, you would receive one passport for each journey you made. So people will appear again and again in some of these registers and indexes because they were subsequently going abroad again and again. So typically you'll get a lot of ambassadors, merchants going across and then coming back and then applying for another passport. Having said that, obviously, you're going to get names of emigrants in, in these listings as well. So this is one of the very early ones before that I mentioned, which was really one of these warrants to pass beyond the seas. So it's an early exchequer record from 1635, and this is going to New York. And the detail is very scant. You tend to get the names of the people and their ages. And it's very difficult to use our catalogue to get to the records you want. Having said that, all the records within these series have been transcribed and published by J.C. Hotton. But this is typically a passport register from 1876. And as you see, they're not the most exciting of records in terms of family history you tend to get a numerical chronological listing of passports as they're issued. So here we're on to about 23,370 on the left, and then you just have a listings of all those that are issued. And it's their names, their destination, which can be as specific as a city like St. Petersburg or Warsaw, or as vague as simply the continent. And then as today, in order to get a passport, you need to have a recommendation from somebody so there's, there's, there's an indication of who recommended someone for a passport. 
And I think this column here is really more about the cost of the passport at the time, or it's possibly the, uh, the duration of the passport. It, 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 the kind of remarks column can, can change from time to time. In terms of the numbers of passports that are issued at this time, there's no sort of like a continuous numerical sequence. The, the numbers went back to one when, the, when there was a change in the foreign secretary. So if you add up all the various numerical series, you're, you're getting into tens and tens of thousands of entries of, on the register that we've got from 1790 right through to the 1940s. And there, a bit more detail of the kind of information to expect to get. A little bit later, 1930, the passports registers are typed by then, but I'm afraid the information doesn't get any better. In fact, it gets considerably worse in the sense that you just get passport issued for Europe. The remarks column there is, is very much so the cost of each passport. These records are actually online, or indeed the indexes to them are. It's a site that we don't co-brand, but if you, if you don't often visit the National Archives, it's something that you may want to check remotely, and it is a charged site. I think they take a subscription, or a, I think it's mainly a subscription site, and it's findmypass.com, and in their collection of migration records, you can search the passport indexes that we have here for these particular years. I mentioned before there's a series FO727 which is very rich in detail of people applying for passports and being issued with passports. And this is a page from a, a document which has 200 sheets or applications and they were issued to people applying for passports in 1916. And as you can see, it's part of a numerical register that runs into the 143,000 region. A very small selection of these applications were selected for preservation and very recently we've just indexed these to name of applicant and more details on our catalogue and I think they're in the region of 400 or 500 issued between 1916 and 1960s. In 1915 it became compulsory that each application and each passport had a photograph, so it's quite interesting to see some of the early photographic work from that period. And this particular person was uh, going to the USA and to visit her relations. So you can see it's very detailed in terms of a physical description, the photograph, and the circumstances of the individual. And similarly, there's a series FO655, which we've just started to catalogue, and they are the returned passports. So when passports were expired, they were returned to the passport office, and a selection, a small selection, has now been preserved and we're currently cataloguing them. We estimate there's probably about 2,500 names, possibly 3,000 names there, of passports that were issued and returned between, I think it's about the 18, 1820s through to 1960s. So moving on to departure records, there are a number of sources of records in the National Archives to record the physical departure of individuals, dating from as early as the mid-16th century, in port books through an exchequer series to registers of passengers as they were boarding vessels in the 1700s, particularly going to the New World and North America. And similarly, you have a short-lived register of passengers for the four years just preceding the America War of Independence as a treasury series in T47. The Board of Trade then start to record names of passengers from as early as 1854, specifically when they record details of passengers who were either born or married or died at sea in those series through to 1972. 
but probably the most common series we have here are the lists of all passengers leaving the UK in the series BT27. That's a relatively continuous run from 1890 through to 1960. That's an example of a port book. Port books were an exchequer document. They were created for the Court of Exchequer to record duties payable on in imports and exports coming into and leaving the country. And it's usually a list of goods that people were bringing into and out of the country, and the records are arranged by the port of arrival or departure. They don't often list names of people or emigrants. It's often listed in the name of the merchant who's bringing in the imports or taking out the export, and the, the, there's an indication of how much is payable on each item. But you can get lists of names of people also emigrating as well. Probably the records which are more known are the uh, registers of passengers, particularly around about the 1630s and 1670s when you started to get the, uh, the mass exodus to the, to the New World as the colonies uh, began to be populated and built up. And this is a record from the Colonial Office series C01, which is the general correspondence for the West in uh, America and the West Indies. They're very, very difficult to use using our catalogue. You know, here, among the correspondence, you get a list of names of passengers who are departing on the vessel called the Ipswich in April 1634. And it's very much names and ages and where you get a family going. You get the father, Robert Rose, going with his, presumably his children, Mary Rose, aged 11, and Samuel Rose, aged 9. I mean, again, people like Hotton have gone through these uh, sources and transcribed them and published them, and you'll see, you know, books outside in the reference room there entitled, uh, you know, Free Emigrants to America, 1600 to 1700. So they've gone through these sources. This uh, foliated number indicates that this record has been filmed and probably back in the 1970s, 80s, copies have been sent to America. So a lot of work has actually gone on to enhance the availability of what's in these records for emigrants. Uh, but unfortunately our catalogue itself may, may not necessarily uh, lead you to know that unless you actually look further down to see, see what, what publications have come from it. I mentioned this very short-lived register of passengers which went to uh, Virginia and the American colonies between 1773 and 1776. The way into this is, is, is a card index which is available in the uh, map and large document room which is alphabetical by name and it lists the uh, name of the individual, their age, occupation, how they got to their destination, in this case Virginia, and when they went, 13th of February 1774. And it leads you to a document which doesn't really give you much more information, it just really confirms who travelled with this person and when they went there. No doubt it would have continued beyond 1776 had it not been for the minor matter of the American War of Independence. but. Again, we haven't got this index by name in our catalogue, but again, a lot of published sources have been through this work and has catalogued it. So at the moment, the easiest way to get through it on site is often by going to the, the card index in the map and large document room. From 1854, the Board of Trade becomes very involved in recording details of people who were born, married, and died on vessels. And there are specific series for that, BT 158, for example, record passengers who died at sea. But it wasn't just the Board of Trade who, was, uh, who were actually returning this information. You'll find other sources. This, for example, is a colonial office register of people being 
emigrated overseas via the emigration commissioners. So these ships were chartered by the emigration commissioner to carry people overseas. And inevitably, and unfortunately, a lot of people didn't survive the vessel. Obviously, before the advent of steam, this is in the 1860s, it would take a number of weeks to get to destinations. And, and the disease would be rife. And you can see on the right-hand side a number of common diseases which would lead inevitably to uh, the death of uh, quite a lot of the individuals most of them being either very old or reasonably old or, or the very young. And there's just one a little bit. Again, I mean, these records aren't indexed by name in terms of the death or the cause of death. The registers that are referred to in BT 158, at the moment the National Archives is working closely with commercial partners to try and get the Board of Trade records of birth, marriages and deaths indexed and available through our website. But you're probably talking another year or so before that's fully complete. And what I'd hope would come from that is a list of names of people who went overseas, but also some kind of indication of, of why they didn't make their destination and what kind of diseases were rife at that time and how old they were when they, when they died. Uh, later on, as I say, this, this is a Board of Trade record. This is the, the register of passengers who died at sea in 1912, and this is in the series BT334. And this is probably one of the, the largest document in the sense that it lists the names of all those who lost their lives on the RMS Titanic. And again, you've got an indication of the cause of death. Some of these later ones, you actually have more information, such as their next of kin or, or where, where they were from or their address. As I say, we're working together to get a co-branded site to record births, marriages and deaths at sea from 1854 right through to 1972. But until then, you know, there are sites out there which have already done this work, which, which don't co-brand with us. But you know, if, if you don't visit us often, it may be something that you want to consider to actually search these off-site using their site and following their subscription. Okay, Moving on to the passenger lists, in terms of records which physically record names and descriptions of all passengers leaving British shores, the series of records uh, you need to really consult is BT27. Now, these start in 1890, they go through to 1960. And the general rule is that records survive for vessels whose final destination was beyond Europe and the Mediterranean. So if you're, if you're searching for a passenger who went from England to Ireland or England to France, it's not going to be here and it's unlikely that that record will survive unless the ship that that person sailed on actually went beyond Ireland and France and beyond Europe and Mediterranean and to the New World or other continents. Until relatively recently, the description on our catalogue was very limited. It would be the port of departure and the year and month when the, when the departure took place. So it was lacking descriptions such as the name of the ship that carried the passengers the names of the passengers and the name of the shipping company and other things. And because there were tens of thousands of people leaving the UK from the 1890, it was very, very difficult for people to find their records of their ancestors in these books because they simply didn't know exactly when they went. And it was only recently that we started to enhance the description on the catalogue. And even more recently, we've actually digitised these records and they're, they're available through our website. Until about the First World War, the information you get from passenger lists leaving the UK is fairly scant. You get the names of the individuals, the class at which they were travelling, 
and then you get an occupation field. And you also get the name of the port in which they've embarked and the port in which they intend to, or they'll disembark, or their final destination. So there's not as much detail as you may expect from some of the early ones. Looking in more details, you know, this is one of the famous ones we've got in the sense it's, it's a list of the Fred Carnot troupe of actors who went to America in 1910. So you'd get uh, Charles Chaplin there, but you'd also get Stan, Stan, Stanley Jefferson uh, or Stan Laurel. Interestingly enough, they actually went via Canada and Quebec and then went down to America. So a lot of people might have assumed, well, they must have gone to the port of uh, New York, whereas obviously it wasn't the case for that particular place. The, ne the next example is uh, moving on about 10 years, 1920. The difference with lists from about, about 1918 is that you start to get a, uh, a specific age field, so you can narrow it down more easily then. Cary Grant, who uh, was from Bristol, but he emigrated from the port of Southampton. So a lot of people often assume, well, if he lived in Bristol, he must have gone from Bristol, but it was never that simple. He would go where the shipping companies were, were based and, and organised in routes to, to and from the destinations where people were going to. This one's, this one's actually a ship, a passenger list of people coming into the country. I just wanted to point out that the, the records are very similar if they're going out or coming in. Again, you get a, a list of passengers for British passengers only. So here you get, well, you get Stan Laurel again, but this time he's coming into Britain. And from about 1922, you begin to get an address field. And regardless of whether they're going out of the country or coming into the country, the address field is always the address in the United Kingdom. So it's the address they're leaving or the address that they're coming to. So in this case, it says proposed address in the UK. And on the same shipping list, but in a different page, are alien passengers. So then you get Oliver Hardy. In 1939, this is just quite an interesting one because... <coughs> Quite often you'll get people's names scored out of passenger lists. And on this particular vessel, so many names were scored out. And these were people who were due to depart from Britain on the 30th of August 1939 to New York who chose not to travel, and presumably because you know, three or four days later it was the outbreak of the Second World War. As far as I'm aware, online you can still get these details of people whose names have been scored out. So it's still worth checking Another reason for putting this one up is that certainly during the 30s and 40s, it's often quite difficult to read in any detail some of the information on these passenger lists, particularly during the Second, well, leading up to and during the Second World War. Basically, what we hold here are, is a copy of the passenger list. A copy was always maintained by the shipping company, in this case, Cunard White Stars, and another copy would go to the Board of Trade as a working a copy, and a copy would go on the vessel. So... The copy that we have tends to be a second or third copy, you know, hence you can actually see from the, from the paper that it's on. And this is one of the very later ones. This is 1954, and again I use the same example, and this is a typed list. Again, you've got no further details, proposed address in the UK, occupation, age. You do tend to get a specific date of birth for lists from 1958, 59 and 60 and they stop at the start of 1960. And again, you get the separate ones for alien passengers. But all these records have now been put online through the National Archives in co-branding with the findmypast.com site. And you can get to it through our website, 
it's estimated that there are about 27 million names. Obviously, these aren't all immigrants because people were, particularly in the 50s, as, as, as tourism took off, people were going and coming back. And obviously, there are merchants and ambassadors. And obviously, a lot of people from Europe were going to America via British ports. So they weren't exclusively British people leaving British shores. And you can uh, actually search for people on this site here, which is just a a boarding site called ancestorsonboard.com and you can search by name and if it's a common name you can refine your search to a year of departure or the name of the ship if you know it or the port of departure. And we are doing exactly the same with ET26 which are the incoming passengers. So they survived for exactly the same period, 1890-1960. In fact there are a few surviving ones for the ports of Liverpool and Queens, Queenstown for the 1882-83, I think. So you get a few earlier lists. And we're actively uh, filming these and we're working closely with, with, with Ancestors.com. And with, with that, we are hoping to release all of the incoming passenger lists probably by the end of this calendar year. But it's not, it's not definite. But that, at the moment, that's what we're looking to do to public records. Just moving on, um, the second part I wanted to do is really uh, talk to you a bit about the government and how it was very keen to promote and foster emigration of people, particularly during the 19th century, particularly when there was decline, certainly in the rural economy, and there was, there was growing unemployment. And at the same time, there was a real need to uh, populate and build the, uh, the, the colonies. And there's, there's a big sort of like movement to do this in the 1820s and 30s. And they set up the Land and Emigration Commission in the, I think, I think it was 1833, to specifically foster and promote migration. And what they do there is, is putting a few uh, incentives like pay people's free passage or assist their passage to destination, in this case, Canada. They'd also perhaps give people you know, land grants or relatively cheap land grants to actually go and, and physically set up a new life overseas. And this is a typical letter which you'll find in the records of the Land and Emigration Commission, which I think is CO3384. And this is really a letter which has come back from someone called Carol Sullivan. And what they're doing is describing his letter, because what he did... He, he moved to Ramsey in Upper Canada from Ireland in 1824 and he writes back to his friends and family to basically express his great satisfaction, the decision he's made and the, and the situation that he's now in. So obviously they'd use this as evidence to go back to perhaps the same place in Ireland to actually say, you know, there's, there's more opportunity outside here and to go there and to actually, you know, build up a new community there. So it's full of... Uh, you know, information like this. And obviously some people are writing themselves to, to get the Land and Immigration Commission to promote or, or sponsor them to go overseas. This is a typical one from somebody who, uh, you know, he's got uh, a wife, he's got five children, four daughters, and it's their intention to emigrate to New Brunswick in Upper Canada. And he'll go on later on to say that there's certain skills that he could take with him fairly typical. This one, I think it's more about, this is an agricultural, he describes himself, a farmer who lives near me, who was brought up from a, a boy in agricultural pursuits on a modern scale. So again, it's describing their circumstances, what they can bring and take overseas, and the need to actually get assisted passage. 
I mentioned, you know, the rural economy did, you know, effectively begin to collapse in the 1830s, and this is a typical example from a poor law union uh, correspondence in the series MH12. And here you've got lists of names of people who were leaving this particular parish. This is the parish of Hockerin in the county of Norfolk in 1836. And clearly, you know, they haven't got employment there. And what they wanted to do here is actually leave the parish. And the parish is no doubt supporting them to leave. And they're emigrating to Canada. And you can see the lists of names plus more importantly, the skills that they can offer. And this is a fairly typical listing within poor law records. And again, the destination here is Upper Canada. I mean, a lot of these records haven't been indexed by name, but hopefully there'll be a lot more opportunity for that to happen over the next few years, uh, working closely with county to county archives. And a lot of uh, records have actually gone to America and Canada, and increasingly family historians and uh, Family history societies in Canada are putting together lists of names of British people who, who arrived and who, whose, whose passage was assisted. Finally, I wanted to talk to you really about the... Uh, the I, I guess it's really a very British phenomen phenomenon. I don't think any other country actively uh, migrated overseas children in the scale of numbers that the British government did towards the end of the 19th century and through to the 1960s. As I said before, it's estimated that over 100,000 children... I think it's 163,000 is one of the sort of like uh, agreed estimates, were migrated overseas from the 1860s largely through to the 1960s, though there is evidence that some were migrated as early as 1618. And really these desire to move people overseas really came from pioneers such as the evangelists, people like Maria Rye, Annie McPherson, very active in Liverpool and in London. And then increasingly you've got people like Dr. Bernardo's who also supported this movement of children, essentially from the slums. So they were basically paupers. Uh, they had very little opportunity to you know, actually make a life of themselves here. And it was deemed that it'd be much more sensible to, to send them overseas where they'd have much more of a chance to make something of their life and acquire skills very much agriculture and rural schools, which is why uh, someone called Kingsley Fairbridge got very much involved in the beginning of the 20th century, where he very much believed in equipping children with trades and skills. The first three were very much focused on migration to Canada. Dr. Bernardo's actually Canada, and then to Australia. Fairbridge was very much an Australian movement. And also the Big Brother scheme actually dealt with migrating older children, children who were 16 or 17. The majority of them were much younger. They were in institutions, whether they were Catholic institutions or Protestant, but they were basically orphans and, and home children, by and large, most of them. Most would go to Canada. After the First World War, emigration to Canada became increasingly more difficult, particularly the migration of children. So you then had big movements going to Australia. In terms of numbers, Around about 80 to 90,000 to Canada, probably about 20 or 30 to Australia. And you also had some other destinations such as South, South Africa as well, so it wasn't excluded to Canada and Australia. I mentioned earlier, this is, this is another uh, example from a Poor Law Union paper, so we, we're going MH12. So this is just typical correspondence in a particular parish, and this parish I think is the parish of Poplar. And this is 1884. 
and again there's an intention to migrate the following children to Canada. So this typical poster would be posted on I don't know, the town, town hall or the church hall or something to actually confirm that uh, the parish or the Poplar Union were uh, emigrating the following children from their parish. And these would be migrated through you know, either Bernardo's, possibly, or Maria Rye or Annie McPherson, by all means, but through independent uh, sources. Having said that, the government were fully supportive of it. And the government went out and inspected how these children were being treated when they got to their destinations and they sent somebody that just shows you how young these children were so from the age of five to the age of 11 or in some 14 i think the youngest one is age one someone called henry hancock at the very at the end of the first page but this this is part of a report by an inspector doyle who was employed by the ministry of health it's a ministry of health file and he went out to canada to be reassured that the children were actually being better treated out in Canada than they were from, from where they'd come from. And there's a very detailed report, really, of all the children, the statements that the children gave, their ages, who they were with. And it's, it's, it's a huge file. Uh, some of the report is, is typed, and others, it's uh, obviously handwritten. And it's dated, I think it's dated between about 1874 and 1877. It, it certainly took a few years for him to actually recommend at the end that the government withdraws its support of any further child migration movements until certain things had been met or guaranteed. There, there was obviously evidence of either maltreatment or, or just kind of like desertion at the other end, as it were. There was very little to actually equip the children with the skills and the education to actually take them further. So there was a while that Britain, the British government would not support this, so they wouldn't send children from the Paul or Union, the, work, the workhouses, and the, than they previously did. We don't have many case files of children who were sent there. Uh, these are very much in the hands of the institutions who transferred the children. So, you know, Dr. Bernardo's, for example, is probably the best example of case histories of children who, who emigrated overseas. A lot of the archives of Dr. Bernardo's is actually held at the University of Liverpool, the Sydney Jones Library, I think it is, and uh, similarly they have a lot of records of the Kingsley Fairbridge School as well. But this is a TNA record. It's a story of two girls, sisters aged 9 and 13, and this is in a Home Office series in HR 144, and as you can see, they were committed in 1907 for being paupers on the street, and there's a little bit of case history about their mother and father. So the mother died two years previous, and the father has spent his, his time in and, in and out of prison. So they were taken in charge of the local authority and a letter was then sent to their father indicating to them a few years later that the children were leaving the Bernardo's girls' village home in Barkinside and being sent to Canada uh, in 1911. And then you get a letter from the father basically being appalled by the uh, decision to do this, and he points out that if this happens, it would be unlikely that he'd, he'd see them again. And if there's any means of stopping it, he shall do so. But the file goes on to confirm that the children did actually go to Canada, and you know, it's more probable than not that he, he never saw them again. In the Second World War, you had a very unique period of British history where a decision was made 
for the government to support the evacuation of children overseas. So you had Operation Pied Piper, which would evacuate millions of children from urban areas at the outbreak of the Second World War. But shortly after that, the British government was inundated with support and offers from America, Canada, South Africa, New Zealand and Australia to take temporary custody of children during the war. So, and this wasn't unusual. Lots of children had been evacuated through private sources, about 11,000 of them, just leading up to the Second World War and shortly afterwards. So in, I think, May 1940, the Children Overseas Reception Board was formed. And what that did was really set up all the work required to select children for passage overseas and to ensure that there was a good cross-section of children from different backgrounds, from different parts of the country. And had it been successful, had it not been stopped abruptly in September 1940, you know, tens of thousands of children would have gone overseas. As it is, only 2,800 actually made the voyage overseas, and there are a number of voyages between May 1940 and September 1940. I think there are about 11 or 12 different shiploads of children. And of course, it's different from the child migration I referred to earlier. For these children, it was likely that they would return to the UK, as the vast majority of them did, after the end of the uh, Second World War. And the children of the Overseas Reception Board would also have to interview and select and recruit escorts. You tended to have two escorts for each party of children, and one tended to be the actual priest or, or, or vicar or whatever for the, uh, whatever religion the, the group, group is. And you'd because the actual voyage itself would still take a number of days, they'd be travelling through very dangerous waters, it wouldn't necessarily be as straightforward. Quite recently on our catalogue, we've now indexed by name all the children who actually participated in this scheme. So this is a typical page of someone called William Coring, who was a child migrant in the Second World War, and in his case, his, well, unfortunately in his case, he was one of the few children who didn't settle and he came back early. And on the reverse of the card, it tells you remarks of what happened to the ch child. In most cases, it said return to the UK at the end of the war. Very few cases, unfortunately, four or five of the children actually died when they were out, when they were actually overseas during the war. And some of them stayed there and their parents actually went out with them as part of the uh, post-Second World War emigration schemes, uh, which happened particularly for the children who went to Australia. Most of them went to Canada. In this particular case, this child was, was imprisoned for three months for being in possession of and driving a car without the owner's consent, and he arrived back in Scotland in 1943. And it's really the exception to the rule, this file, that I just wanted to sort of like... I suppose, bring it to the attention that not everyone could easily settle overseas. It was a whole different world to what people had been used to in this country. Apart from anything else, things like accents were very difficult to actually understand. But sadly, the scheme came to an abrupt end in September 23, 1940, when the city of Benares, which was carrying children to Canada, was torpedoed and 
206 adults and 87 children lost their lives. Very few of the children on board survived. When the torpedo struck, it was in the early hours of the morning and there was obviously little time to react and get to the lifeboats. This early report indicates those people who lost their lives. And you can actually see there that the brothers Peter and William Short were lost. And actually, I think it was Peter Short did in fact die. And this letter, which is written by his father, indicates that his, his other son did in fact survive. He was picked up on a lifeboat two or three days later. Again, this is in the series DO111. This, this particular series of records is, is the surviving correspondence relating to the work of the children of the Overseas Reception Board. So it does include detailed letters from, from anxious parents. And in this particular case, there's, there's quite a lot that relate to the city of Benares and the tragedy being sued. And a lot of them are still alive and they still meet every year and that there are uh, reunions of the children, of the, well, particularly from the city of Benares, but I think also any child that was involved in the corpse scheme, they do have reunions. You know, and I think the criteria was that no child who went on Corb, I think, could be younger than seven, and no child could be older than 15, so it gives you an idea of how old they might be now. And unfortunately, you know, personal records of children who were evacuated in Britain to rural areas, very little seems to survive. The school that evacuated them may have some records, whereas here you've got very detailed records of the 2,800 children who, who did evacuate overseas. Thank you. You're welcome. This event was recorded live on the 17th of June 2008 at the National Archives Q. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.